Karen Dion, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So I, I know that you are a co-founder of the uh, Thrive Community and that you're involved with the Sinclair Method, um, and you know, which is a really incredible way for people to uh, safely reduce their alcohol consumption and to eventually, you know, for people that are looking to completely quit alcohol, you know, it's it's a great way to do it without the trauma of cold turkey, quitting and withdraw. So yeah, tell me a little bit about how you uh, came to this point of being involved with with the Sinclair Method and Thrive. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so I was, uh, just to give you a little history, um, my original challenge in life was I had an eating disorder as a teenager. And so I struggled with that for about a decade. Um, and it was really my first introduction to, I guess, what we would call harm reduction um, in the sense that, you know, when you have a, a addiction to food, in a sense, you can't really stop eating. Right. And so you have to figure out a way to have a healthier relationship with food. And so I, I worked through that in my 20s. And it became a passion of mine. And so I ended up going back to school and um, getting my um, degree and uh, certification and license to become an addiction counselor. And so my goal at that time was to work with people with disordered eating and help them, um, you know, find a better relationship with food. Um, in my clinical training as an addiction counselor, I ended up working in a um, state-run facility here in Montana who were working with mostly people with alcohol addiction who were court-ordered due to getting a DUI. Um, and so I did that for a year, my clinical internship there. So I had exposure to mostly alcohol addiction, um, some other addictions, but it was primarily alcohol, um, but through a court-ordered system in the in the bulk of my training was 12 steps, abstinence-based, um, pretty straightforward in terms of the traditional types of treatment. And what I saw along the way is that most of my clients were not getting help. They were uh, reluctantly attending the meetings because they were required to, reluctantly attending outpatient, but in terms of their success, it was really minimal. Um, and also through that period of time, you know, I came to realize that uh, although I didn't feel like I fe fell in a category of, of alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, that I had some of the qualities in my relationship with alcohol that were unhealthy. Um, and so it was kind of an evolution um, during that time where I was I was learning more about traditional treatment. Um, because being a harm reductionist, I would speak up in some of the meetings and get, you know, promptly shut down. Um, I remember, you know, there was a Suboxone clinic in town for people who were struggling with heroin. And, and in my uh, peer group there with other counselors, that facility was actually mocked and made fun of as uh, not real recovery. And so I just remember, you know, really uh, feeling like uh, tra traditional treatment was really pigeonholing people into, you know, one size fits all for everyone. And I actually ended up leaving. Uh, I, I finished my clinical inter internship, got my license, and I left the field because I looked at the counselors that were my peers. They were mostly unhealthy. They were in unhealthy relationships. They were uh, still struggling with alcohol cravings. They were going out the back door and chain smoking every chance they could get. Um, and I just thought, you know, there's really nothing. I felt like I didn't have anything to offer my clients that, you know, they weren't getting help from the system. Uh, the counselors themselves weren't healthy. And I thought, you know, this isn't, I just really don't have anything here to offer. And I thought at the time, 
well, maybe I just wasted my time, but I'm going to take this information that that I learned and I'm going to find the, the, the nuggets of wisdom and move on. And so I ended up going uh, into preventative medicine and getting my uh, postgraduate certification in health and wellness coaching through a company called Well Coaches and uh, working for the local hospital for about seven years in preventative health. And my specialty was addiction. So I worked in smoking cessation. I worked with uh, disordered eating. And of course, you know, alcohol abuse was, you know, part of that as well. And so I was still working very much behaviorally in the field in terms of helping people change their lifestyle, change their um, identity, change their habits, um, those kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, I was still struggling with my own drinking. And, it, uh, you know, I, again, I didn't fall into the category of what I felt like was an alcoholic because I was still going to work. I was still participating in triathlons. I was still, you know, my life was very functional, but I was, I knew I wasn't at my best because I was drinking uh, probably three to two to three to four glasses of wine, four or five nights a week. Right. So um, it was more of a uh, kind of a chronic problem for me rather than I, I wasn't a binge drinker. Um, it was more of just something like a lifestyle for me, but I wasn't feeling well as I was, you know, getting into my later forties and I was, you know, waking up with hangovers many days of the week. And so I started taking a look again at my own drinking and started making some changes based on the tools I had learned both as a counselor and as a coach. Um, I started tracking my drinks. I started setting limits for myself. I started um, working on uh, filling my life with other uh, more positive activities um, and I made a lot of progress. So my drinking actually decreased. And I was at that point probably um, drinking, you know, maybe three glasses of wine, three nights a week. But what I noticed is it was a real struggle. So I had to really work hard to, to stay within my limits. I thought about drinking all the time. And uh, it just felt like it wasn't sustainable. Like it felt like it was just so much work for me to have to stay within these, you know, guidelines that I set for myself. Um, and and every now and then I would drink beyond that limit, and and it was unpredictable and um, you know unexpected. And and I sometimes I would you know say or do things that I regretted the next day. Right. So I I listened to a podcast of yours. And I don't know who it was with Dr. Leeds recently, but you talked a lot about gray area drinking and the gray yeah. area drink. And I would definitely categorize myself as that. And one of the things that really was poignant in that interview that I heard you say is that, you know, the, the consequence with gray area drinkers is it's kind of like a, a long, slow burn, right? You don't really have the impetus to make a dramatic change because you're not hitting any kind of rock bottom or you're not having huge consequences in life, but you just kind of underperform and you know lead lead kind of more of a mediocre life right you you just don't uh do the things that you might have done otherwise and i definitely found that was the case for me you know i didn't have any real dramatic uh, aha moments or or you know confrontations from my family nobody you know thought that i was drinking problematically but myself but i knew that i just wasn't at my best Right. And so, um, again, you know, I didn't really see in traditional treatment that was an option for me. Uh, it didn't feel like I felt like I fell into that category and I needed to just quit drinking altogether. But certainly it was impacting my life negatively. 
And, and so in the course of working as a health and wellness coach for the hospital and working with my clients, I did, uh, at, you know, I was always doing research for, you know, the, the new supplements or new techniques to help my clients. And one day I just came across Claudia Christian's TED Talk and it, I don't even know how I got there. I just found it online. And I remember still to this day, and this has been over six years ago, uh, hearing her TED talk and being like, it was like a light bulb went off. It just made so much sense. And uh, I thought, you know, I've got to give this a try. Um, and so I did. And I, within a very short period of time after starting the medication, naltrexone, uh, taking one hour before drinking, I was a very fast responder. Uh, within 90 days, I had about 40 to 45 extinction sessions. And we can talk more about what those are in a minute. But extinction session is basically when you take the medication and you, and you have an alcoholic beverage. Um, within three months, I, I felt like my addiction or my uh, my problem with alcohol was was gone. It just the the obsessive thoughts, the cravings, the desire for alcohol was just gone. And it was to me, it felt miraculous because having kind of battled this for a number of years it just felt like the missing piece for me. You know, I didn't have to fight these urges and cravings. And for me, it was as much about the obsessive thoughts, even on days that I wasn't drinking or, or long stretches, I would have long stretches where I would, you know, do juice fasts and things like that. But I could never really get over the obsessive thoughts about alcohol and the looking forward to the day I could drink again. And that was just gone. The, this medication and this uh, method, uh, it's almost like it erased it from my brain memory from my brain. And so once that happened, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is my life's work. Like people need to know about this. I still, to this day, you know, the question that I get asked all the time is why if this works so well, why haven't I heard of it? And I do have answers for that now, but at the time, you know, I went through clinical training as an addiction counselor and this was naltrexone was never mentioned once ever. Yeah my training. And so, you know, I made it my mission at that point. I made the decision that this is what I was going to do somehow, some way. I didn't really know at the time how I was going to get the word out, um, but it began that process. Um, I started working as a coach one-on-one -on -one with people. I worked for, um, you may be familiar with uh, SinclairMethod.org. Um, so they provide the medication for patients across the country. And so I did coaching for them, for their TSM patients for several, several years, and then uh, started collaborating with Katie Lane, uh, who is another TSM success story about uh, a year and a half ago to two years ago. And she and I, um, our mission was really to create a comprehensive program that would take somebody through the very first time they've heard about TSM all the way to, uh, you know, being... Uh, resolved with their addiction to alcohol, which is what we call pharmacological extinction. Um, and, uh, you know, she and I wanted to create something that would walk someone through it step by step, because we just, what we had both found in our journeys is we really had to piecemeal the information together um, and find, you know, find what would work for us. And, you know, both of us made mistakes along the way and, um, you know, had things that, uh, could have been avoided, you know, had we had more information. And so that is, that was the birth of Thrive, Thrive Alcohol Recovery in the Thrive community. Um, and, you know, now we are uh, fully active and supporting hundreds of members now through this journey. So 
Uh, it's been, you know, coming full circle now after six years, it's been a real, um, just a real blessing for me to be able to help other people with this process as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Something that you, you meant, you talked about, um, gray area drinking and, uh, you know, people, you know, probably not feeling like, um, there's probably a lot of people that, that drink a little bit too much or they even drink at all, you know, and, and, um, they, things would be a lot better for them if they did not drink and, you know, but they don't really see themselves as having a problem. They may even have someone in the family with a, a really bad addiction problem. You know, the, the black sheep of the family, they're like, Oh, look, look at him or her, you know, they, they really have a problem. You know, that person really needs to be in meetings and be in rehab. We need to stage an intervention and, you know, they'll n may never look at themselves and, and see that, you know, when they go out to dinner that they're having one glass of wine after another. And, um, you know, and, and it's really, um, you know, and, and maybe people in that situation, like in how, how you are, maybe they'll respond better than anyone to naltrexone. Um, and, and just imagine the productivity and, you know, people achieving their dreams and doing great things with their lives if they could just, you know, stop drinking that that little bit or going out and binging every once in a while. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's like a you know, I mean, there's so many people, you know, it's not just the the alcoholic, you know, the person that had to go to rehab, um, you know, or was told they have to go to meetings. It's not just those people that can benefit from a community like Thrive. I mean, maybe, um, you know, there, there's just, you know, a huge number of people out there that could really benefit from some some guidance and learning about this and how naltrexone can, can help them. And, and it's a safe medication. I mean, it's something that by now really should have just been over the counter. I mean, you should be able to check out at your grocery store and say, oh, there's some some energy pills and some mm -hmm. some Advil. And, oh, what's that naltrexone? There's a little picture of a glass of wine on it. Is that going to help me stop drinking? Oh, let me get some of that too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great point. I, and I know that Jenny at the C3 Foundation has a petition into the FDA to make it an over-counter over drug. But, you know, of course, I'm sure that's a long process, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to your point, you know, I think one of the beauties of now, Trexone and TSM is it doesn't require any kind of formal diagnosis. It doesn't require for any kind of rock bottom. Uh, it doesn't require, you know, it really you to tell anybody that you're even doing this method, right? You can do it in complete privacy and discretion without even your immediate family members knowing, right? And so it, it really lends itself to the whole spectrum of problematic drinking, really from, you know, just over drinking alcohol abuse and gray area drinking all the way to severe alcohol use disorder and everything in between. Um, you know, the, the medication could even work potentially prophylactically, say, you know, for a a young adult who knew that they had uh, alcohol use disorder in their family could take it really uh, preventatively, you know, before they go yeah. out to a college party so that, you know, they, uh, you know, wouldn't over drink and drink, you know, to blackout. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that when one of the short acting um, effects of the medication that naltrexone uh, is well known for and does really well is it prevents, prevents binge drinking. Um, yeah. Even in the moment, you know, even long before someone reaches pharmacological extinction, which is truly the end goal with TSM, even in the moment in a drinking session, naltrexone will curb the urge to overdrink. And so what people find is they just drink more slowly. Um, they're not gulping their drinks. They're not looking for the next drink. They're feeling full 
Um, and they're just not feeling kind of like they want to keep going, um, yeah. which is really common. You know, one of the one of the indicators of, of alcohol use disorder is that feeling of compulsivity once you have the first drink. And you hear a lot about that in AA, you know, that first drink, you know, if you have that first sip, all bets are off. And, and to a certain degree, I think with people with alcohol use disorder, that's true. You know, I think subjectively, most of us uh, that have struggled with alcohol have kind of had that, that experience of, having that first drink and that not feeling like it's enough. I want the next one and, and maybe even the next one and the next one. Right. And so naltrexone really does that well in terms of curving that compulsive desire to keep going once you have the first drink. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, it could be used all the way across the spectrum and, 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 and from, you know, anywhere from being preventative all the way to somebody who's drinking, you know, 24 hours a day around the clock. Uh, now, that being said, you know, somebody on the more severe end of the spectrum, it's going to take a little bit more, of course, more time, but it's also going to take a little bit more uh, working with a therapist or a coach or a doctor to time the medication properly to make sure that you don't get thrown yeah. into alcohol withdrawals because the medication actually can work so well that people who are really heavy drinkers can stop drinking so quickly that they could go into withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal. So, yeah. you know, people that are on the more severe end of the spectrum do need more monitoring with, uh, you know, preferably a physician who can kind of monitor those symptoms and make sure that the medication is uh, helping them taper at a pace that isn't going to throw them into any kind of, you know, physical uh, danger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish that, um, we had naltrexone when I was in college, and, and it's kind of frustrating thinking about it because it was around then. Um, although I think it was, um, I, you know, I went to college in the late 80s, 87, so I think it was approved for opioids, but probably not for alcohol yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't an alcoholic, but probably like a lot of college students, you know, you go to a party or a place where people are drinking, and, um, you know, it's, it's stressful. There's, you know, a lot of people around, you know, you don't know most of the people and you just want to relax and someone gives you a drink and then you're like, wow, this is great. I'm, I'm all relaxed and I can talk to people easier. If a little bit is good, maybe another one is going to be even better. And, you know, next thing you know, you, you've had too much and, you know, the party's not fun anymore. You know, you can't find your way home and you wake up with a headache. And, um, you know, at least for, for me one day, I just said, you know, that's enough. I'm sick of it. And fortunately, I was able just to stop and kind of haven't really, you know, I might have a sip of champagne here and there. And and that's a great thing, again, you know, with the, uh, the Sinclair method is that, you know, you, you don't have to tell someone, you, you never have to have a sip, you can never have champagne at New Year's again. You know, if you want to have that sip of champagne, you can have it just at 11pm on New Year's Eve, you know, take your naltrexone, then midnight, you can have your glass of champagne or sip it. Um, but, but there's just so much um, use for this. Uh, but yeah, like early on, I mean, kids in college, they could benefit from, from thrive, you know, kids that just are maybe getting a B or C in, in a class and, um, you know, in, in their average and, you know, they could do a little bit better and, you know, maybe they don't connect the two things, you know, partying too much on the weekend, you know, starting Thursday through Sunday or whatever, and then they go, go to class Monday with a hangover and they don't drink the rest of the week. Um, you know, they could really benefit, you know, cause not everybody really wants to get, you know, you do get that compulsion. I mean, I don't think you have to be an alcoholic, to, to get that thing where you just don't realize you just keep going and drinking a little bit too much every time you start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's got a broad range of uses and, and to your point of, you know, most people that we work with don't have abstinence as a goal. Um, yeah. Either they, either they just don't want that lifestyle or they don't think they can have, they can have comfortable abstinence. 
Um, and so I would say, you know, probably 90% of the people that we work with come in with a goal of moderate drinking and controlled drinking. And that's what the medication does really well, frankly. I mean, it does help people drink and control. And that is what a lot of people are looking for. And I think that a lot of the mainstream treatments are really missing the boat, right? They're, they're, they're pushing abstinence on people who uh, they're going to, they, they reject that. Right. And I think, I think a lot of the denial that we see kind of traditionally what we call denial, uh, with people with alcohol use disorder is really just denial of the treatment options, not denial of the problem. I, I have found in my work, you know, I've been, I've been working in this field for, you know, over a decade that most people are pretty aware that they have a problem on some level. They just yeah. don't, see themselves going into an abstinence-based treatment program. And so the lack of options for them to resolve this problem becomes, you know, what we would traditionally call denial, right? Because they're, they're denying, not necessarily that they have a problem, but that they, you know, should go into this one size fits all solution, uh, which really, frankly, for most people doesn't work, right? For a number of different reasons, because, you know, we, we all know people who have have had long periods of abstinence, but they're still craving alcohol and they're still having to go to meetings and they're still resentful towards other people that could drink. And in my book, they're still addicted, right? Even if they've had long periods of time of abstinence, if they're still obsessing about alcohol, that's still a, that's still a form of addiction, right? Mm -hmm. and, and naltrexone really kind of turns that whole model on its head, right? It really works on the neurological level so that people don't feel uh, drawn to alcohol anymore. It really just helps it find the proper place in your life or, or no place at all, right? So when, when something becomes less uh, desirable, it's not hard to not do it anymore, right? And that's what real, naltrexone really does. It takes the, the shine off of alcohol, right? It takes the, the peel out of it. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, doesn't really it's an indifference. It doesn't really have the draw that it used to have. And I know it's really hard to describe the, that feeling to, to people who are still in the throes of AUD, but it really is like a fading away uh, over time of just it not being really important anymore. Um, and I know for me, what happened, and, I, and I've seen this happen with other clients, not always, but for me, I just, I actually lost the taste for alcohol. Like the taste doesn't appeal to me at all anymore. And I think back to, you know, my first drinking experiences as a, as a young teenager and most people's drinking experiences, you know, in the beginning, you know, it's very sweet and fruity drinks, right? Because alcohol itself is not something that, uh, you know, a, a child would, would taste and want to have more of, right? It really is a learned taste. And we learn it because it gives us this big endorphin rush. So we learn to like it because we associate it with the way we feel, but really, truly the taste of alcohol is not that great. And so, you know, a lot of people, when they start on this method, they notice that they lose the taste uh, for their favorite drink or lose their taste for alcohol altogether, or it just doesn't taste good anymore. Right. And then, you know, if, if yeah. something tastes good, it's not that difficult to, uh, to let it go out of your life. Right. Yeah. One of my patients described it as um, when she took her first naltrexone and uh, and then an hour later a, a drink, she said it it made the alcohol taste like uh, like she had just brushed her, her teeth before her drinking. Yeah, yeah, it does give it, uh, especially wine. You know, it gives it a really vinegary taste. You know, which is yeah. which is interesting. Is you know, is that is that how it really really does taste? And and yeah. naltrexone, <laughs> you know, is kind of giving you that 
that uh, real uh, experience of what alcohol tastes like, or, you know, it's, it is a kind of interesting phenomenon, but it's pretty common. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, one of the benefits of naltrexone over time is it just, it, it, it causes you to want to do other things other than drink, right? Because it's not fun anymore. You don't get the endorphin rush. It doesn't really taste that good. Um, and, And so why bother? Right. Yeah. And that's where, where most people end up, if, you know, uh, kind of circling back to what we were talking about before, it, you know, I'd say 90% of people don't have abstinence as an end goal. What we find is that, you know, if, if you follow the Sinclair method long enough and you're consistent with it over a period of months and even years, many people end up being abstinent just by just as a gradual, non, non-intentional thing of just like alcohol just continues to fade out of their life and out of, out of their lifestyle um, till they're virtually abstinent, you know, and, and we do have clients who maybe, like you said, we'll have champagne once or twice a year at a wedding and that's it, you know, yeah. and so it doesn't have to be this, you know, big black and white thing, like, like traditional treatment told us, you know, if you, if you're abstinent and you have a sip of champagne, well, you're starting over again on day one, right? That's not, that's not the case with uh, naltrexone and TSM. And, you know, and there are people who still drink alcohol on a regular basis. They're just not drinking excessively. They're staying in control. Um, They're not drinking typically on a daily basis, maybe, you know, weekly or monthly. Um, And they're taking naltrexone first. So they're, they're, continuing their gains and continuing to protect yeah. their brain from relearning the uh, the addiction but they're able to enjoy a drink socially if they choose and so it gives yeah. tsm gives people a freedom to continue to have the social ritual of alcohol and continue to have that social lubricant if you will because you know although naltrexone does block the euphoria from alcohol it doesn't block the other effects of alcohol. And that's, what I think, really important for people to realize it doesn't prevent intoxication and it doesn't prevent the other, what people would call pleasurable effects of alcohol, the social disinhibition, uh, relaxation, um, and those types of things are still present. Um, the naltrexone is just blocking the euphoria, which is the addictive component of alcohol. So people can still enjoy alcohol, enjoy it in a social context, but they feel like they're back in control and they don't overdrink anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that that makes sense. Also, that I mean, there are things that are intoxicating that are not especially pleasurable at all. Um, you know, if you if you take Benadryl, it'll make you really sleepy, but but nobody's like really abusing Benadryl. Um, I mean, so there's like you know, a person. It, it makes sense that you could still have the effects of alcohol without like the, you know, that pleasurable desire to keep drinking because it, it's such a great feeling. Um, and in fact, if it seems like there's a lot of things that people do that they're driven by the reward center in their brain to do them. And if, you know, if you take that away, you know, they just seem ridiculous. It's like, why would I go to a casino and keep pulling on a handle, sitting in a chair all night, throwing money in the garbage, you know, and just, you know, because you know, you're really not going to win long term. So, but there's people that sit there and they get that pleasurable thing when the, you know, the thing lights up and makes all the no- the music, you know, all the noise and the the environment, you know, you, you get that endorphin rush and there's a pleasure to, to throwing money away in a casino. And, um, you know, when you eat, you know, when people are already full or they're not hungry and they're eating chip after chip, you know, it just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work chewing on food. I mean, you know, going to buy the food, take it out, prepare it and chew on it, it's like swallow it. It's like, that's a lot of work. Like that's a, a strange thing to be doing if you don't need to do it. And um, when you take the pleasure out of a lot of pleasurable activities, they just seem like ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I can see. But then we went on a trip to um, 
to Ireland a few years ago, like maybe five or six years ago. It was way before COVID. But um, when we were there, we we wanted to go to the Guinness uh, brewery. And, you know, just, you know, not because we all wanted to get drunk on Guinness beer, but we wanted to to take the tour and look around. And, um, you know, the kids wanted to, every, the whole family, you know, the kids wanted to go in. And, you know, it was really interesting how they make the beer. You know, we walked around, we saw where they have like the, the secret safe where they, well, it wasn't the real safe. It was like a, you know, what it looked like, you know, and they had the, you know, waterfall and everything. And you, you go through the whole tour and the end of the tour, you go up to this, um, it's not a restaurant, but whatever you call it, like where they have the, you know, the main bar at the top. And if you look look on YouTube, you'll see the celebrities that go up there and they're drinking the the beer with the big foam on it and everything. And so we were like, you know, we were excited to go up there and, you know, my wife wanted to try the beer um, I wasn't that excited about it, but I tasted the foam on the top. And I was thinking, you know, for an alcoholic, you could go to Ireland and completely miss this experience because you probably would be thinking like, I can't go in there. I might have one sip and I'm done. You know, that's the end of it. And, um, you know, if you hang around a barber shop, you're going to get a haircut. You know, they have all these sayings. You just, you can't even go near there. You know, it's like a vampire going in a church. You just have to stay away. But, you know, you just miss out on all that history. And, you know, just the interesting thing of that this is a... Um, a major part of that country and their culture. And, uh, you know, I, I, someone on the Sinclair method could just take a pill and go in there and not worry about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point because if you look at both people who are actively drinking, right, that would be a problematic scenario for them, right? Because they might be afraid that they'd overdrink that would trigger overdrinking, but it's also a problematic scenario for someone who is abstinent and who is, you know, who, who is, you know, gone through a traditional kind of treatment and and can't drink at all, they would have a problem just being even in that atmosphere, right? Because it would yeah. induce cravings, it would induce resentment towards other people who are being able to drink. And so yeah. it's a problem for, you know, that kind of scenario uh, could be a problem for any either of those spectrums. Whereas with the Sinclair method, you have just the freedom, you could go in and you could have a, you know, a taste of beer or a little bit of beer, not worry about losing control and, and also not feeling resentful towards other people are drinking, yeah. you know, in case in point, I mean, I think, you know, when I first started uh, the Sinclair method, I was working as a health and wellness coach, but one of my hobbies, I had a hobby job and uh, that was uh, being an international tour manager. So I would take people on tours uh, to Europe and the company I worked for at the time, we mostly did tours in Italy. And so they were very much, you know, wine-based. So I'd go lead these tours for, you know, 10 or 14 days, and I'd be taking a group around Italy, and we'd be stopping and doing wine tastings. We'd have wine at dinner every single night. You know, people are on vacation, they're in Europe. And here I am, I was the tour manager. So I had to maintain control, you know, and, and make sure that the group flowed smoothly and everything. And so I, I didn't have the luxury of over drinking at all. And, you know, prior to the Sinclair method and naltrexone, those were real struggles for me because I had to drink a little bit in order to, you know, be part of the wine tasting and be part of my group as we're traveling. But I was always worried about over drinking and keeping myself in check because I was the leader of the group. Right. And I started the Sinclair method while I was still leading these tours. And it gave me the ability to feel confident in my ability to lead these tours, have a few sips of, I take my naltrexone, have a few sips of wine and, and not feel the compulsion to keep drinking or, you know, be able to have a glass of wine at dinner with my guests, you know, and not feel like I, you know, was worried about what was, what was going to happen if I, you know, be able to keep my wits about me to pay the bill properly and walk them back to the hotel in the evening. So I think it's 
particularly for people who have alcohol as part of their career. You know, you think of sommeliers, sommeliers, is that how you say it? People who are are wine uh, specialists and, you know, people work in breweries or the restaurant industry. You know, it's very difficult to uh, imagine, you know, not being able to ever have a drink again. Um, And so for those people, you know, also that Sinclair method is really uh, appealing to them because it allows them to continue to play, you know, play their role in their career, which involves alcohol, but not lose control when they do drink. Yeah. Yeah. I, when, when I've seen, um, you know, people discussing uh, naltrexone on the Sinclair method and, you know, forums online, I, I see that some people, um, I mean, some people can't, don't have easy access to naltrexone, you know, depending on what country they're in or, or their doctor or, you know, different situations. And, you know, it's frustrating if you go to the doctor and you go through all the trouble to go to the doctor and you just want to ask for naltrexone and then you bring it up and, you know, they, they might be completely confused. They might look it up and say, see the word opioid, even though it's an opioid receptor blocker, there's no, it, it's in no way addicting, but, you know, in, in the rush of having to go in and out of patient rooms and, you know, the doctor looks at it, they're like, there's something off about that. You know, I, I don't want to get into treating alcoholism, you know, because this person's at, at high risk for drinking too much and damaging their liver, maybe dying or something. And I'd rather just not be part of, I'd rather just, you know, tell them to go to AA and, and be done with it. Um, or there might be doctors who would have been willing to write the prescription, but, you know, they don't want to put on, put on the prescription, you know, follow Sinclair method, take, take a pill and drink, have a drink an hour later. Um, I think some doctors imagine in their head, like getting a call in the middle of the night, you know, police officer saying, we found this person's body here and they're surrounded by liquor. And here's a bottle of pills with your name on it that says, take a pill and drink. And, um, you know, so doctors are, are a little bit nervous about the whole thing. But I think a lot of doctors will be willing to give someone a prescription, but then people get mad. They're like, why isn't this doctor on board? And, you know, telling me how to take it properly on the instructions. But uh, But once you get the prescription, you know, a person... Now they have it in their hand. I, I guess that, you know, that might be a moral dilemma for some people. You know, my doctor told me to take it this way, but Sinclair method is this this other way. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that if someone comes into the Thrive community or comes to you and says, my doctor said, take it every morning and don't drink at all, but I want to follow the Sinclair method and I have a, a bottle of 30 or 90 pills. What do I do now? Yeah, that's. I think that's a great question. I mean, you know, we do live in a, in a in a day and age where you know, with the internet, people are able to self research, and so that's you know been a a big positive for most people. They're able to do their own research and be their own health advocates, which I think people should be anyway. You know, doctors aren't gods, right? So. Um, you know, I think that it is each person's responsibility to take care of their own health and own that. Um, you know, on the on the flip side, I understand that's not an easy conversation often to have with your primary care physician. And, you know, uh, general practitioners are often not familiar with uh, either the medication itself or if they are familiar with the medication, how to use it properly. And, and the Sinclair method is an off-label use of medications. Um, many medications are used off-label for, for many different things, as we all know. Um, and so it, it's not an anomaly for someone to use a medication off-label. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, we we uh, try not to um, get into a conversation where we would be uh, contradictory, contradicting physicians' recommendations. What we try to do is educate people and, and let them make the choice. Uh, you know, and, and show them the statistics that show, you know, targeted use of naltrexone is much more effective than daily use of naltrexone. And here are the reasons why. 
um, and let them make their own choice and make their own decision. Um, and we also, you know, we provide referrals inside our community once people join our program um, to physicians that we have vetted, that we know that are, you know, familiar with the Sinclair method and how to use it properly and, you know, how to mitigate side effects and all those things that come along with that. So we really steer people in that direction. Um, we have access to physicians in all 50 states, Canada, and some parts of, you know, other parts of the world as well. So we, you know, have a pretty robust uh, list of resources. And then the C3 Foundation, as you are aware, also is doing outreach all the time to educate new physicians on this method so that the availability is getting better and easier. Um, but like you said, you know, really, it, it shouldn't be a problem for a GP to write a prescription because really naltrexin is such a benign medication, such a safe medication. It's been FDA approved since 1994, I believe, for alcohol use disorder. Um, and one of the physicians that, you know, we partnered with once told me, you know, he feels like, in his opinion, naltrexone is as safe as, say, Advil or ibuprofen. Um, right. And so it's got a very good safety profile uh, if you look back. And, it, and again, it's, you know, been approved for a long, long time. So there really shouldn't be any reason why a physician would not want to prescribe the medication itself. But as you mentioned, you know, some physicians just probably wouldn't even want to go there. They would not feel like they had had the uh, bandwidth to follow through with somebody, which is which is partially true, right? I mean, we do see also, you know, we, we want to make naltrexone available to as many people as possible. And also, you know, you, through using the Sinclair method, but, you know, there are people who, you know, simply just rely only on the medication and don't do anything else. You know, yeah. they just take a pill and, and they expect it to, to be a magic pill or a panacea. And although, you know, if they're taking it uh, through the protocol, they typically will see a change in their drinking because the medication does work. Um, but if they don't do any other kind of lifestyle change or make any kind of effort to change their beliefs around alcohol or the way they live or what they do for fun, uh, they usually typically will plateau uh, at a certain point and, and, you know, still be drinking probably more than they might want to, uh, unless they really start addressing kind of the underlying issues of why they started drinking drinking heavily in the first place, and how to change their lifestyle so that they're they're not turning to alcohol for uh, pleasure, relief, boredom, you know, coping, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, one one thing I, I want to make sure that we talk about, and you, and you talked about it a little bit that you know you've been through a lot of training for for addiction. Um, and I looked into that at one point of going back to uh, to do a fellowship or a, a residency in addiction, um, you know, become to become board certified in addiction. And I know some doctors they get really interested in it. They they want to um, they want to become certified and credentialed, and you know, have that after their title as you know, addiction board certified addiction specialist. Um, but the, uh, the those organizations are very much involved with uh, the twelve steps and AA and NA and um, the you know the twelve step uh, philosophy has kind of hijacked addiction treatment and and uh, credentialing and education all throughout the system. Um, so so with Narcotics Anonymous, you know, which came out of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, for people that didn't feel comfortable raising their hand and saying I'm an alcoholic, you know, when they're smoking crack or shooting a heroin, um, although they might still also have an alcohol problem. Um, in 1996, they had a, a pamphlet that was very specifically against methadone. Um, you know, to say that they don't agree with the methadone program of taking, although a lot of people in NA have, you know, methadone saved their lives, and then they had to struggle to get off of that. Um, 
a much more recent um, uh, Narcotics Anonymous pamphlet, there, there's a paragraph that, uh, and I used to think this was against Suboxone uh, specifically or against buprenorphine for opioid uh, use disorder. But when you when you think about what it says, though, I think it's saying something much more than that, which is kind of ominous, you know, with the Sinclair method and the use of naltrexone, even for opioids. Um, it says, as we stated previously, NA has no opinion on the practices of any organization or practitioners outside NA. However, within the context of NA and its meetings, we have generally accepted principles, and one is that NA is a program of complete abstinence. By definition, medically-assisted therapy indicates that medication is being given to people to treat addiction. In NA, addiction is treated by abstinence and through application of the spiritual principles contained in the 12 steps of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so when you think about what they're saying there, they don't mention a, a drug at all, and it kind of covers every drug. You know, they don't believe in any drug being used to treat addiction whatsoever. You know, even if you could give an Advil, and, and you know, in fact, these days they're, they're finding a lot of drugs for other things that actually work for addiction. Um, what's that? There's that one for nausea that, uh, on Dancitron. Yeah. yeah. Low dose on Dancitron is showing a lot of promise. One of the doctors that we work with, Dr. Umhau, is really uh, very excited about low dose on Dancitron and, and especially bringing it into third world countries where not, yeah. where not it's difficult to get. Um, and there seems to be, you know, some genetic um, uh, differences in people and what kind of drugs they yeah. respond to. Non-Dancitron has a very gen uh, definite genetic profile for certain people that it will work for well for in low doses for addiction. So yeah, I yeah. think there's you know there's ketamine, there's uh, psychedelics, yeah. spirolactine was recently in the news. You know yeah. we have you know, the Camprosate and, and Topramax and yeah. uh, you know, these other medications that can be used uh, collaboratively with naltrexone potentially. Yeah. Um, and also can help with craving reduction. So I think there's a lot of promise in the future. There may even be something. I mean, now Trexone is is very well tolerated and has a very high success rate for AUD, particularly using eighty percent. But you know, there may be another medication that comes out in the future that works more quickly with less side effects. You know, and people don't have to take it forever. I mean, so I think yeah. you know, Trexone right now is is what we focus on in our program because it just works, and we've seen it yeah. over. And Again, that it works for people, but you know, certainly on the horizon, you know, not just for alcohol use disorder, but for other addictions, there are lots of promising medications on the horizon. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's not a one again, it's not a one size fits all disorder. Yeah. People develop addictions to all kinds of things. I mean, my perfect example, I I had a food addiction, right? I mean, you know, that's very difficult to treat, you know, because you can't abstain from food, right? Yeah. So. Uh, so I think that, you know, as we gain knowledge in the field of addiction, I think we'll, we'll come to see, uh, and we already coming, are coming to see that it isn't just, you know, uh, one thing, right? It, you know, it, it's a it's a myriad of different forces that come together right. to cause addiction in people. And um, certainly the physiological component is very strong. Cravings are the number one cause of relapse for, for people who are abstaining from alcohol. So, you know, certainly we, we want to address those physiological issues in the brain, um, but there are other, other components too. And, and, and spirituality is one of them um, for some people, not for everyone, but certainly for those people that, you know, have that connection that can be a, a healing force. Absolutely. Um, but it's a shame that these, you know, these uh, organizations that have so much influence 
are yeah. making kinds of statements like this that you know all medications are kind of off the table and i've even yeah. heard unfortunately of people who've been in aa meetings who have been you know advised to go off of their antidepressants and off oh, you yeah. know other things that have really thrown people into uh you know problematic state right so um you know I don't, I try not to criticize, uh, you know, 12-step programs because that's all yeah. that there was for the longest time. And I think, you know, the intention of those programs from the founders were were good. And interestingly enough, just a, a quick backstory, I mean, Bill Wilson, who was the founder of AA, you know, some of his revelations uh, about AA were, came from uh, him taking LSD, um, and not a lot of people know that backstory, but he had that spiritual awakening as a result of of taking LSD, which is a really kind of ironic, uh, you know, backstory um, yeah. being the, the A is taking now. Um, but so so, you know, again, I try not to criticize it too much because it it has helped some people. But I think if we look at the success rates, they're very low. You know, we're talking you know, 10, 15% maybe over a long period of time. And, and on the flip side of that, that means that there's, you know, 80% of people or more who are engaging in these programs and not getting help. And, and the thing that what I see that has happened, a lot of people that come to TSM from the AA world is they really lose hope because they're being told that, you know, this is your, this is the one pathway, you know, this is the one right way. And, you know, uh, if it doesn't work for them, and, and many people have, you know, tried and failed, you know, dozens of times, right? Um, they give up, they give up trying, they give up hope, um, they internalize it and feel like, you know, there's something uh, just horribly wrong with them. And, and you know, some of the principles reinforce that, you know, we talk about powerlessness and, and character flaws and, you know, having an identity as someone who's addicted to a substance, I think though all those for me are kind of problematic because they keep people stuck in the problem indefinitely, right? They don't allow me people to to move past their their problem and their issue and go on to live their life. And that's one of the things I love about TSM is, you know, people go through this process, they reach extinction, they find a healthy relationship with alcohol or or stop drinking altogether, and then they go on and live their lives. They don't have to go to meetings forever. They don't have to keep battling cravings. They don't have to keep fighting this fight. Like this is a one and done thing. If you do it, if you go through the process and get to extinction and 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 continue to follow the protocol if you if you choose to drink at all, you don't have to deal with this problem over and over again. It doesn't have to be something that haunts you. You certainly don't have to, you know, call yourself a name or a label that's stigmatizing, right? And so people go on and they they move past this problem in their life, which uh, which to me is like a real beautiful thing, right? Because that's what we really want. That's the whole goal is to be to be put this problem in your past and go on and, and live your life uh, and you know go on and do other things, right? So yeah. uh, that's a, I mean that to me is a, a huge difference. And what what this medication naltrexone does really well is is it, it really does heal the brain and returns it back to the pre-addicted state. Um, and it's a, it's different than if you look at you know methadone and suboxone and uh, buprenorphine. They are only partial agonist uh, opiate blockers, and so there is some level of potential continuing addiction with those particular substances that doesn't exist with naltrexone. So yeah. you know, 
Naltrexone should not necessarily be put in the same category as something like Suboxone or Methadone because it really has zero addictive properties um, at all. So there's no like tapering off of naltrexone or anything like that. You just, you use it as needed. So in the beginning, you know, when people first starting to take the medication, typically they're drinking fairly frequently. They're taking the medication more often, but as they're drinking less and less frequently, they're taking the medication less and less often. And then, you know, the end result is someone, you know, if they're drinking once a month, they take the medication once a month. If they're drinking once a year, they take it once a year. That's very sustainable for most people, as opposed yeah. to got to take this medication every day forever or you know you've, you've got to taper off this medication because now you're addicted to something else secondarily you know that just isn't the case with naltrexone it, it very it very much becomes just a very occasional thing or if you if people choose to not drink at all and live alcohol free you never have to take it again yeah yeah that, that makes sense um yeah but about the thrive community um you know, sometimes people don't, you know, the Sinclair method seems really straightforward, you know, that you take a pill an hour before you have a drink and do that, like, maybe every day at first, maybe every few days or whenever you're going to have a drink. Um, but you can kind of summarize it like in a, a sentence or a short paragraph. Um, but but people, you know, and they try it, you know, the first time, they're like, wow, that really works, you know, like, you know, I might do that again one day. Um, and, and then they kind of put it in the back burner. But, uh, you know, it reminds me of, um, you know, like, uh, you know, when I, I used to take piano lessons and um, I, I haven't taken them for, for decades. And uh, I, I used to be a lot better when I took piano lessons because I had that piano teacher coach. I mean, well, they call him a piano teacher, but, you know, they point out what I'm doing wrong. I, I had to make sure I was prepared for the next lesson. You know, they would guide me in what, how to play, how to practice. And, um, you know, so why don't I take lessons now? Um, I, I don't feel like paying a piano teacher $100 a week and um, going to a lesson, but I was thinking, if a piano teacher told me, how about you pay me a thousand dollars and I'll be, I'll be your teacher as long as the, t the two of us are alive, you know, just forever. I'll be your teacher every week we can meet. I'm like, wow, that's an incredible deal. That'll pay for itself in two months. And, you know, then we'll just keep going. Um, and I heard that you guys have like a lifetime deal that people can have you guys as their Sinclair method coach and support community forever. If they sign up for like a, a one-time thing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And and that was intentional. You know, when Katie and I started this, you know, we really were trying to look at what we would have needed and what, you know, the clients that we had worked with really what did they really need to be successful, right? And what we found is that, you know, because compliance is such a critical issue on uh, on the Sinclair method, it's so essential that once you start taking this medication that you do follow the protocol uh very consistently um you know it's one of those things that i say you know it's the sinclair method is is simple but it's not always easy right and so that that compliance piece is so essential that people do dabble with it or try it once and you know kind of stop taking the medication and then try it again and until they really get it sometimes it takes two or three times where they see the medications working then they stop taking it and they kind of go back slide backslide and then they yeah. you know maybe take it again and and uh and then before they really commit to compliance and so um, we wanted to not give an end date or, or pressure for people to reach any certain goal at any certain time we wanted to leave that open-ended because you know, the, the time frame with naltrexone, just the extinction process itself ranges anywhere from three months to two years, 
Um, and there's a very wide variation depending on the individuals, just their physiology and, and of course their drivers, you know, what their drivers are for drinking and then what their support system is, what their beliefs around alcohol. There's so many different facets in addition to the physiology that play a role and why people are still turning to alcohol as a coping tool. Um, so we wanted to give that kind of you know, and as long as it takes, right? Um, and and in our program, you know, we do focus on the protocol. I mean, we put a lot of emphasis on using the medication correctly and how to have extinction sessions and, you know, how to stay compliant. But we also do want to take people kind of past that point too, of, you know, looking looking towards their future. What is their vision for themselves after they're not addicted to alcohol anymore? What are some of their goals along the way and some of their bigger life goals? Um, what is their identity around alcohol? What do they believe about alcohol? Um, what is their lifestyle? What, what do they come home and do at the end of a long, hard, hard day to relax instead of alcohol, right? And so relearning kind of these new tools is a big part of our program as well, because you, know, you take alcohol out of your life and you create this vacuum, you've got to fill it with something to be fulfilled, right? And so we really wanted to give people um, something that took them past just naltrexone and extinction and into living a thriving life, right? And so that is the reason why we decided to make it a lifetime, um, a lifetime program. Um, and in addition to that, we, we find that people who reach extinction with TSM and find success, really a, a large portion of them want to stay connected to the community and give back and really advocate for this method to other people and be an encourager. And so, you know, we have hired coaches in Thrive who are success stories of TSM for that reason, because, you know, there there's having gone through the experience yourself, that's irreplaceable. You know, you can, you could go to, to, to school and get educated, you know, uh, you know, and become, you know, get an advanced degree. But if you don't have that personal experience, it's sometimes it's hard to relate to the struggles of, of what people are going through. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that was part of our mission is to really hire people to help us and, and thrive who have that personal experience of TSM themselves and who have, who have reached success. And then we just have a lot of also just kind of volunteers in our group who have reached success and are just so enthusiastic about this uh, about this method that they just really want to just give back to, to new people who are coming on board. And so we do see people staying in the community for longer, even after extinction, just to give encouragement because they're so excited about um, spreading the word about this treatment. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I think, you know, if I, if I had an issue with alcohol, I would, I'd sign up right away because, um, um, I mean, even if someone is trying other things, you know, they're reading books, they're they're um, watching different videos in different places, they're going to the C3 Foundation to, to look at their material, um, it can't hurt to have extra support in different areas. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of any kind of lifetime deal. And, and I, I, my thought would be, and not that you're planning this, I, I know you're not, but, you know, say in a year or two, you decide that the lifetime model doesn't work, but you'll probably honor all, I mean, I'm sure you'll honor all those early sign up people. I'd want to make sure I get in now, you know, like say a few years down the road and you change that, you know, at least I'm locked in. So, um, but I'm always looking for those kinds of uh, lifetime deal things. So, so yeah, I would think, you know, and and sometimes you you get in you sign up and then you're like well I signed up I'm I'm not quite ready yet but I might be ready next year um, and I've done that I've bought into these lifetime software deals and you know then the lifetime deal ends and and now it's month to month for everybody else but two years down the road I'm like you know I'm ready now I I remember that thing I bought into I really want to use it now and now it's there for me 
Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend, uh, you know, people should just get in now while they can and, um, you know, and get started, you know, but don't put off the, the program for two years because, you know, the best time alcohol is just not a good thing for anybody. People should like try to cut back now. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think, you know, I don't foresee us changing that because really, again, if you look at the model of what we're teaching is that, you know, it, it is going to be time limited just by nature, right? Because people yeah. are going to reach extinction, they're going to rebuild their life, and then they're going to go out and live their life, right? So they're not going to need the resources forevermore. They have yeah. them for as long as they want. And, you know, again, if people, you know, like you said, sometimes people just, you know, they, they, they purchase something on the spur of the moment, but they're not really ready to make that change yet. You know, they can re-enter or, or re-engage at any point in time in the future. And so, yeah. you know, we really are, um, you know, we really try to just, you know, we understand it's an investment for people to invest in our program, but we really are, sometimes I feel like we want their success more than they do. Yeah. <laughs> but we really do want, you know, we want every member who joins us to find success with the Sinclair method. And so we we try to give every resource available that we see that would be helpful to people. So everything from, you know, we we have courses, we have over 40 video modules that are sequential. So they take people step by step through the protocol and then step by step through rebuilding their life as they're going approaching extinction. Um, but we also have group support meetings, which are a big, uh, a big draw for people where they several times a week, they can go in and, and meet with others that are um, going through the journey alongside them and, and have access to a TSM coach. So you can ask questions and um, you know, the, the meetings are all facilitated by a TSM coach. So we offer those regularly. And then we also have regular workshops that go into one more specific topic. So recently we did one on harm reduction in the holidays. Uh, we have a therapist who's a TSM um, specialist as well, who's going to do a whole series of workshops on underlying trauma and um, that kind of thing. And so I think, you know, we really are trying to meet all the needs of, of our members, right? Because remembering that people start drinking problematically for different reasons, right? And so some people have, some people just have the bad habit of drinking and they have, you know, the genetic combination that they just develop a, a, a drinking um, problem, but the rest of their life's still in order, right? They still have good support. They're, they're financially doing okay. Their career is still intact, um, those kinds of things. It, um, but, you know, this, this drinking is kind of the problem, right? Other people find that, as they're going to, through the process and approaching extinction, maybe they have underlying childhood trauma. Maybe they have underlying anxiety and depression or other mental health issues. Maybe they don't have a good support system or, you know, their finances are, are unstable or other factors in their life that contributed to their drinking problem, but are still there, you know, even though now they're going through extinction, those problem underlying issues are still present. And now in, in some sense, they're amplified right? Because now they're not, they don't have alcohol as a coping tool. And so for those people, you know, working through those underlying issues is part of the process, right? Because those are times where people uh, are tempted to drink non-compliantly, for instance. So, so sometimes we see people that go through this process, they're making great, they're uh, making great strides and something happens in life, some kind of dramatic event, you know, they lose their job or their dog passes away or something like that happens and they decide to drink non-compliantly because they just want to feel the relief and the euphoria 
and then they kind of fall off the protocol, right? So that's not an uncommon scenario. Um, one of the things about, you know, our programs, we still have this container, right, where we can help them get back on the protocol again, rather than just kind of going back into their old patterns and not really having any support or resources to, you know, re-engage in the protocol. So, you know, there's lots of different reasons why having the support can be critical to success for people, not just in knowing how to use the protocol correctly, because that information is out there if you, if you, you know, research, but the accountability piece, kind of like you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, Checking in weekly, right? The the being able to listen to other people's success stories, hear what you know, what challenges that they've gone through and how they resolve them. You know, remembering that this is for most people a year-long process. <clears throat> so to be to stay self-motivated for any kind of long-term change like that, most of us have, you know, had been exposed to some kind of, you know life change and either, you know, we're trying to get fit or we're trying to lose weight or those kinds of things. And you realize that, you know, it isn't something that's done in a month or two months. This is a long-term lifestyle change that, you know, most change takes, you know, a, a year to kind of solidify. Um, and, and TSM is no different than that. And so, you know, having that support system for that full year where you have a place to go ask questions and hear other people, people's challenges and, and struggles and, and solutions, <clears throat> and then have access to a coach where you can, you know, get more personalized attention for anything that you're going through through the process can really make the difference between succeeding and not succeeding for many people. Yeah, yeah, it 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 sounds it sounds great, and um, you know, it's um, I was we just got through the holidays, and I imagine there's a lot of people that struggled with with drinking or not drinking, and um, you know, I because I, I I kind of I love the idea of like, you know, showing seeing family we haven't seen for a long time, and. And and showing off like oh look how great things are going. I just imagine someone who drinks norm normally everybody's looking at the this one person in the family oh look he's gonna have a glass of wine and he'll be off drinking the whole bottle and he's gonna embarrass himself and like imagine how fun that would be just to go show up to that Thanksgiving Christmas dinner New Year's party whatever and just say like oh yeah you think I'm gonna drink all night watch me I can I can sip the same beer or wine all night and that's the that's it for me. Um, you know that that's a great feeling, and you know also to show up to to the Thrive community meetings and say, look, you know it's working for me. I'm you know I can't believe this is working. I'm I'm drinking less. You know, look at my my graph here. You know, it's going down over time, and um, you know that that's what you know. I I think any program like that with accountability, you know, like like uh, Weight Watchers for people losing weight, like um, like I, I always lose weight when I go there because I'm competitive. I'm like I want the people to see like, oh look, two pounds down this week. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I know you can't really measure, there's no objective measurement like a weight you can do for alcohol, but but I guess people, I, you, you must have that that app, right? Or you provide that information where people can track their, their drinking, because yeah, that's really yeah. great. The C3 Foundation has an app that's TSM specific, so um, they've developed that, so we do, you know, steer people in that direction, but there are other apps that, that work as well. Um, one of them is called Drink Control. So we, we typically steer people towards uh, apps that are moderation friendly rather than abstinent friendly, because we don't really want people counting abstinent days, right? Yeah. This program really isn't, um, doesn't really serve the purpose of TSM. So we, you know, we definitely have certain apps that we steer people towards, but the C3 Foundation is a good solid one because you know, they are yeah. uh, grounded in, in the protocol. Yeah. And that, that's another thing is that, you know, when you're, um if you go to like a 12 step program and you have like. 12 years sober, 20 years sober, one, one sip, you know, if, um, 
if you know if you're honest with yourself and with the people in the meeting you just show up and like I'm sorry, everybody. I had a sip of beer. I just threw away 20 years of sobriety and all, all of my authority in this meeting of being a leader in the community. And now I'm just a newcomer again. And it, it's kind of meaningless. I mean, and, and that I think can lead to someone going on a on a full binge. It's like, you know, I already threw away 20 years. You know, I might as well have some fun. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and I think with the Sinclair method and moderation and, and you never, as long as you take the pill before you drink, you know, if you, if you miss it one time, you know, say you're that person, you, you can do it the next time, get back on track, but you're not really necessarily throwing away anything. I mean, it's not like you don't have to identify with, with sobriety time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, that's really, you know, it's a really harsh way to measure success, right? That the black and white thinking doesn't work for a lot of people, right? And it, and it, and if you're, you know, if you're put in that scenario and you've already failed, why not fail gloriously, right? Yeah. So people <laughs> on these binges, right? And, and so again, you know, TSM kind of takes, turns that on its end. It really doesn't have any of those kinds of um, artificial structures that really are, can, can really be harmful to people. Um, it just really measures just progress and understanding that, you know, progress for most humans isn't linear. I mean, we're, you know, we're human beings. Usually, you know, most changes don't happen um, in a linear fashion where we're just continually making progress, right? We, we learn, we make mistakes, we revise, we, we try again, you know, that's the way that humans learn and change, not just kind of making this absolute decision that, you know, now we're going to change our life dramatically forevermore. Uh, for most people that doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, to, you know, to your point of kind of having to start over again after, you know, having one sip of alcohol, it's really demoralizing and, and could really kind of lead to, to people kind of dropping out and, and not even trying anymore. So, yeah, so TSM is just such a radically different approach, um, which is why it appeals to many people. You know, there, there are many people that come to us have already just made the decision that AA, it, it doesn't, it hasn't worked for them. They've already you know, tried it that way. They've maybe tried other things as well. Um, and so, you know, that that's not an uncommon experience for people to be like, you know, I tried this, this, and this, and none of these things have worked. And, and, um, and TSM often does work very quickly for those people, because here's the thing, you know, they're, when you're in the throes of cravings in and addiction, it's really hard to put to implement tools, right? Tools to change and even doing things like drink tracking and and being mindful. And those things are very difficult when you're in the throes of cravings. And so what people often find is uh, once they start TSM and start getting some distance from their cravings for alcohol, is they're able to start implementing these tools that maybe they've learned in other programs in the past. And, and you know, smart recovery is a great one that I recommend to people because it's very um, complementary to TSM and they're also um, medication assisted treatment friendly. So yeah. they uh, will, you know, support that. But, you know, even AA has some value, right? There's some yeah. valuable things in AA. If you can glean those things, kind of take what works for you and leave the rest. What a lot of people find is that now all these tools that they've, been trying to implement are able to get some traction in their life because now they're not being driven by cravings and they can actually have some space in their thoughts to think, huh, do I really want this next drink? No, I really don't. Right. But before they were just kind of compulsively or, or, or unconsciously pouring that next drink without even being able to have that space to make the decision, right. They're kind of making it on an unconscious level. So, you know, I, I often tell clients when they're starting TSM, you know, maybe they've 
they've been through outpatient other programs and 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 failed at them and i try to really encourage them to reframe that as you know they've learned all these strategies and they just haven't been able to implement them properly because they've been kind of sabotaged by their physiology now that the medication is in their system they're going to start getting some space from those feelings and they're going to be able to implement those tools again and i do see that um, that happens often is that people are like, now things are making sense. They, you know, they're going to their therapist and things are clicking the tools that they've learned in the past are, they're now able to put into practice in their life and they really start making progress quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the thrive community really sounds like an incredible thing that, that people can benefit from. You know, someone's interested in, in the Sinclair method to take naltrexone and, and slow down their drinking get their drinking under control. Um, I think that'd be a great first step, you know, looking you guys up and, and seeing what it's all about. What what would be like the best place to go first? Is there a website that people can go to? Yeah, yeah, we had, we have a ton of free resources as well. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to enroll in our program to access our free resources. But if you go to thrivealcoholrecovery.com, that's our homepage. We have, uh, again, some free videos on there. We have lots of information about the Sinclair method and how it works, um, some success stories, some endorsements and those kinds of things. So Thrive Alcohol Recovery is our website. There's also the C3 Foundation, um, which is the nonprofit organization founded by um, Claudia Christian, who uh, who also you know gives a ton of free resources um, and guidance. And even one um, thing that I really appreciate that they have on their website is they have printable documents that people can print out and take to their primary care physician. If they want to advocate for themselves and want to go get naltrexone from their primary care doctor, they can educate themselves and educate their doctor on this uh, method. So that's a great resource as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds great. So uh, yeah, Karen Dion, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Leeds. It was my pleasure.